Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, if you look at the leadership of the stock market in the second quarter so far, it's sort of a classic defensive leadership. Healthcare, utilities, technology. Wait, technology? Has the Delta variant gotten so bad that tech is defensive again? Or were we crazy simply to ever think that tech would fall off the market's leaderboard for very long to begin with? We'll get into it with a portfolio manager and tech analyst. But first, I want to welcome uh, back to the show uh, a woman who there's a bit of mystery to her, but she's no stranger to our our listeners here on What Goes Up. She's uh, coming back for another co-hosting gig. Her name is Vildana Hyrick. Vildana, welcome back. Thanks for having me. And you, since you are known, you don't get the Charlie Pellet introduction treatment. I, I'm sorry about that. But next time, I'll definitely expect it. Right. But I'm glad to have you on, Vildana, because as a proud New Jersey native like yourself, it's a big week for New Jersey women in the Olympics. Are you as excited as I am about all these gold medals that, that the great state of New Jersey is winning? I'm hugely excited. And my household was like cheering and so excited all week. And I think Moo is from Trenton. I'm from Trenton. So I was really, really excited to see her win. Right. And don't forget Sydney McLaughlin right down the road for me. Sydney too. Yeah. Very exciting. Vildana, if you were in the Olympics, what sport would you be taking gold medal in? Oh my gosh. That's, I mean, not, I'm like not athletic at all. I can't even picture <laughs> some of the things they do, like hurdles. I can't even picture anybody ever looking at one and, and thinking, I'm going to jump over that, let alone <laughs> jump over it very, very quickly. So I, I'm a big I have fan no of, answer for you. I'm a big fan of the hurdles and I'm a big fan of the Jamaican team, uh, even though I'm uh, not as big of a fan as the New Jersey contingent of the Olympic. But the, the Jamaican uh, track team is so, so athletic. Well, Donna, you would win gold in the craziest things of the Olympics, though, I will say. If the craziest things, if there was an event for craziest things in the markets in a week, you, you would win the gold. And I will Thank say you. anyone else who out there has seen something crazy, by all means, give us a call on the Bloomberg podcast hotline. I've been very negligent in not giving out the number for several episodes, but by all means, call us up at 646-324-3490. Again, that's 646-324-3490. Our lines are open, as they say on radio, I think. I don't know, something like that. But uh, leave us a voicemail on the hotline with the craziest thing you saw in markets, and maybe we'll play it on the show. Well, Donna, another proud New Jersey, and I believe at least his firm is located in New Jersey, is this week's guest. Uh, as I said, he's a, a portfolio manager at Harding Lovner. His name is Chris Mack. Chris, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. And yes, you're right. New Jersey, born and raised. So absolutely. New Jersey roots here. And a Lafayette grad to boot, which is kind of like almost New Jersey-esque in Pennsylvania, right over the river. Uh, kind of a rival to my Delaware Blue Hens, but I'm not going to get on your case about that. 
<laughs> that's okay. Lehigh's the only rivalry that counts for. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's true. Can't compete with you all in football, but we've we've gotten uh, so yeah. I'll pretend it's a rivalry. But yeah, basketball it's a, it's a decent matchup sometimes, but uh, but Chris, let's get into it. I know you have a, a pretty heavy tech focus uh, at your firm and and the funds you help manage. Um, what is going on with tech being back in the leadership? I think the simple explanation narrative is that, oh, everyone's worried about the virus again. But you know, as I said in the intro, I mean, did it ever make sense to sort of bet against tech? I mean, is, is it just a perennial leader that we should kind of always look to in absence of some other reason for, say, the cyclicals to outperform? How are you thinking about just the sector as a whole right now? Sure. Yeah. And, you know, we could talk about maybe since the pandemic or even some of the trends that have been taking on a longer term uh, perspective. You know, what's interesting about technology, and I think you mentioned in your comments earlier, you started talking about cyclical or defensive, right? And if you look at the how the 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 sector has evolved in terms of index representation, software has become a much, much larger percentage of the index, as opposed to if you go way back when it's much more, it was hardware, Semiconductor is pretty strong. So, you know, and even software as a whole has become their business model has shifted, right? A little bit more recurring revenue, less counting on cyclical launches of versions of software, a little bit less capex intensive, right? And so it has become a little bit more at the margin defensive to your point. Uh, but when you look back over the past year, it's been different segments leading tech. There was a period of time when it was all about the semiconductor shortage. And that cyclical rebound. And so semis were leading the way. You go back last year, it was more about software and digitalization of everything. Um, and then, you know, particularly smaller cap software, where maybe these companies are not yet profitable, but they're growing really fast because they're acquiring new users and can become more profitable more quickly. Um, so it's been le- different, different turns in leadership. One point, small caps, semiconductors. Now back to the big tech, uh, which to your point is a little bit more defensive. Chris, I remember last year when people positioning in tech companies actually was signaling that potentially we could be seeing a much longer time period of the the recovery from the pandemic. But I also wanted to ask you if you could maybe tell us a bit more about your top holdings, because I think you guys own some FANGs, but then at the same time, you also own some regional banks, which uh, is, is an interesting play given what's going on with interest rates. So maybe you can tell us a bit more about how you guys are positioning. Sure. And this kind of gets to, I guess you would say, the debate is, okay, what are we doing? Uh, you know, we, we take a look at businesses. We look at combination of quality of the business, the profitability, growth, and then lastly, valuation. So valuation tends to dictate where we move. So tech has been a structural uh, large weight for us. Healthcare as well. Um, we'll touch on that a little bit later, but I'll get to your point on banks. Uh, we are relative to index overweight on banks. It's become a larger uh, position for us, but it's not been a, so much a, a cyclical trade, if you will. It's been much more about how are we finding under the radar growth financials that are able to grow irrespective of what interest rates are going to happen, right? So example of that is a company like First Republic, which is a big holding for us. They're primarily growing a lot of you know, relationship-wise through referrals, um, fee-based income. From, from wealth management advice. Uh, so that is a little bit less dependent upon what's happening with interest rates. It will certainly help them too. Uh, but you know, if you look back, 75% of their growth has been coming from existing customers uh, and just growing their wealth over time. So there's a certain element here that that's not relying on any particular cycle. 
Yeah, I, those are I, I, those are kind of financials that appeal to us. I was looking at those holdings too. It's it's fascinating to me. So First Republic and SVB Financial. What I find, I guess it's not funny, but I kind of find it funny is that these are stocks that are in both value and growth indexes. So it's kind of like everyone's deciding to rotate from growth to value. Hey, why not buy the ones that are that are in both indexes? But I mean, when you think about it, is that almost a, a, a viable strategy? What, as you said, what are the growth stocks that are that are priced like value stocks in a way? I mean, it seems, you know, that's the conversation that doesn't get brought into the growth value roots rotation, it seems like. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. And I think that, so I think this, a lot of times it's framed as there's this false dichotomy. Is it growth or is it value? And there's, there could be a quite a lot of overlap. You look at historically companies like Apple that have been in both. Uh, and you, so, so there's this, this false conception and you have to pick one or the other. And so we're looking for growth, but just reasonably priced growth. And sometimes that leads us into something that's more value-esque. Uh, but then, you know, even take, take the case for value today. There, It's it's about could value uh, stocks, could the underlying businesses grow more quickly coming out of the pandemic than the growth businesses that are trading at a premium, right? Um, so even the, even the value case has got some element of growth to it. Uh, so for us, the lines blur. It's really looking at what are the strongest position businesses within their industries, uh, you know, where the where the structure is the strongest, um, and then less than looking at that valuation. So financials paired with technology makes a lot of sense to us. Um, even, you know, you could have a financial related technology company like in payments like PayPal, which is one of our larger holdings, um, you know, given digital payments and, and so on. Um, and so combining that with healthcare, for example, and a decent amount of industrials uh, with some cyclical exposure, that's the way we're we're navigating this current environment because we can't predict what's happening with the Delta variant. We don't know what's going to happen with interest rates. I could certainly give you my opinion, but I could wouldn't put a whole lot of weight uh, in that opinion. So how do we manage those uncertainties? It's through a globally diversified portfolio. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. I'm glad you brought up the Delta variant again, because I wanted to ask you how you and your team are thinking about what's been going on. And in terms of what the bond market is signaling, does it signal that potentially we could have a slower growth environment or are some of the signals from the bond market a bit more technical in nature? How are you thinking about it and how much of a threat is the Delta variant to growth and growth prospects? Uh, it's certainly a threat. Uh, and I think when it goes back to thinking about uh, the pandemic recovery and vaccinations globally, and just this notion that, okay, certainly 
not every country is able to get either access to the vaccinations or able to distribute them broadly enough that you have this uneven recovery if it's all about just the pandemic, right? And so that's already been coming into play. Now the Delta variant just brings it home to roost. And now it comes home here in the U.S. that is threatening because vaccinations didn't quite get to the level that we had all been hoping for. And so now it just makes everyone tap the brakes again. So if you think about the whole case for you know the higher interest rates, it gets back to this, what's going to happen with inflation, right? And to what extent are... Yeah, we have the stronger demand coming out of the pandemic because fortunately it wasn't as damaging as it could have been. You also had some financial, you know, economic uh, incentive packages that have helped out there, uh, ease the blow, if you will. Um, but, you know, trying to get the supply up and running, we see it in the semiconductor sector, for example, right? Or semiconductor industry or building, look at the price of, you know, of building materials and what's happened. So we had this period where up until May, everyone was anticipating inflation. And then that great CPI number comes in and you could see some of these you know, timber prices and everything just roll over, right? And so I think everything would point to the Fed being on the right path and saying that it is it will be transient, if you ask me. Um, question is, how long is transient? Uh, because it's certainly these things are bottled up and it's, some haven't come down the pike yet, right? It's going to take some time for the semiconductor shortage to ease. We know that there's going to be more demand for semis and things like autos. And, you know, try buying an auto, try buying a car right now, it's impossible. Um, and so that's going to take some time for that manufacturing supply chain to, to, to respond. And then if anything, you go into next year, hey, maybe we are going to swing on the, the other side, overcapacity and back into the story of deflation and everything else uh, that has been such a technology-led thing uh, through digitalization. So a bit, you know, going on there. But um, to your point, yeah, if you look at the the ten year yield on treasuries, that's rolled up. You wouldn't have thought any of this has happened, right? It's back to the old big tech deflation type trade, uh, and you know, so there's no way of knowing exactly what's going to happen in the future. But I would argue that the longer term past is much more likely than the more recent past that seems to be more temporary in nature due to t- pandemic related effects. You know. Every time I hear the word transient, I think of those old hobos that used to wander around with like the stick and the and the bag on the end of the stick and riding the rails. Anyway, that's just me. That that that's neither that's neither here nor there. But Chris, I, I you said something early on that I think is so important. You know that there's so many different subsectors within technology. Um, you know, obviously they've tried to sort of break out. You know, the the Amazons and the Facebooks and the Googles out of the main tech index and put them in discretionary or uh, uh, communications. I think there's an argument to be made that maybe the index providers could do that again, maybe a couple times and, and break up hardware and whatever. But specifically thinking about chip stocks, you know, the, the fascinating thing to me is this shortage of chips this year exposed the reality that basically every company, what company is not at, at its core somehow exposed to tech these days? I mean, if you can't, if you can't build a, an automobile without the supply of chips, uh, you know, it, it's just remarkable. And, and on up and down the, the line, financial companies um, are, in large sense, mostly technology companies these days. But specifically with chips, it's been such a shocking year for the chip sector with these shortages and the ripple effects caused by them. In your mind, does it seem like the, like a sort of tipping point type of event that will change the industry forever? In other words, will we 
sort of get away from that just in time type of manufacturing uh, that so many companies had relied on? Uh, can we actually expect some foundries in the U.S. at some point? I mean, and more companies, you know, talking about, uh, you know, fabricating their own chips or is that is that kind of a pipe dream? I mean, it's so expensive to to, to get into that game. How do you see that all playing out sort of as a long term effect of everything we've seen in, in the past year? Yeah, on a longer term view, um, you know, I, I think over time there, there is that potential that you do have a broader manufacturing footprint uh, as it becomes more strategic. But to your point, it's easier said than done, right? It's very, it's only becoming more and more and more expensive to manufacture smaller and smaller chips uh, and certain, you know, transistors. And so if you look at how someone like Taiwan Semiconductor, it's also a holding of ours uh, has become so dominant. uh, It's in part because of these economies of scale that accrue and the expertise for them operating this foundry model, which if you go way back when, companies used to produce their own chips uh, here in the US, for example. Uh, and then they decided to outsource them. Why did they outsource them? Because of the volatility in cycles made it very a costly yeah. endeavor for them to predict. So you, you, you would bear the brunt of all this capital expenditure. And then if you time the cycle wrong, you take the financial hit. So working with someone like a Taiwan Semiconductor outsourcing that manufacturing, that company is able to now diversify across all the different end markets and their customers that they have, and they could soften the blow and run a much more profitable model over time that allows them to continue investing in CapEx and so on and so forth. Um, so, you know, I think you're, they're going to try to, there's certainly more government incentives to try to do for them to manufacture elsewhere, whether it's in the US, Europe is also talking the same type of thing. What does it change longer term? I'm not sure it changes too much. Um, I think at the end of the day, it comes back to industry structure. Yeah. It comes back to, you know, who are the, who, I think you're seeing more customization in chips for things like artificial intelligence, Google design their own chips, Amazon, Apple, and that only fragments the end market, which gives more strength to the uh, end manufacturer at the end of the day. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Yeah, Chris, I wanted to ask you about small caps. I know one of the funds you help manage is a, is a small cap fund. And boy, talk about the rug sort of getting pulled out of that as an asset class. Um, you know, it was supposed to be one of the big beneficiaries of uh, the reopening, the reflation trade. And that's kind of, uh, you know, the uh, that's kind of turned around. I mean, I guess... Um, 
when you're an active manager, it, it, it's arguably easier to to navigate than when uh, you know you're buying just the the two two thousand index, the Russell two thousand index. Um, but w- what is your thinking about small caps as an asset class right now? I mean, where how are you sort of sifting through uh, everything and finding finding the best, most promising companies given this turnaround we've seen in, in the the index level uh, small cap situation? Yeah. Um, so if anything, so yeah, it's an interesting environment for us as being more growth for, focused. Uh, the the headwind, the, the the effects value was small cap value in particular was outperforming growth by a wide margin, um, and so we benefited from the growth tailwind last year, and then we're suffering a little bit from it this year. Uh, so the fact, you know, seeing some rollover, we're not complaining too much about that. But as that's happened, it's given us opportunities to look at, you know, smaller growth companies that have been left behind. I think one of the areas that's kind of interesting is uh, U.S. specialty retail. There's a lot of uh, talk that, you know, it's just an Amazon world. It's all e-commerce, right? And there's some small companies or smaller companies that are interesting that we own in the in the all cap fund, uh, like an Etsy, for example, that used to be a small cap and now it's no longer. But there are brick and mortar retailers that are doing okay in this environment. They're managing, to, they're growing their stores. They are taking advantage of the disruption from the pandemic and the weak weaker financial strength of uh, competitors to acquire more land and real estate and build. And so, some examples, companies that are doing that is a company Ollie's. Ollie's Discount Retail. They're growing their stores year over year. Um, they've actually been able to, they have this discount model where, you know, people are always still, there's a real, there's a reason to visit the store every day. They're, they have a loyalty system. Um, and so they've been able to grow their customers in part because through the pandemic, they've were able to uh, sell more, um, you know, essential items, cleaning products and so on, but they offer other things. And so they have a good buying network, kind of like a small TJ Maxx, if you will. Um, Another one is Five Below, this little niche targeting that teenage tween type segment with quirky different things uh, at a reason, you know, but at a, they're, they're occupying this niche that is something that people go for that experience. And it's not an Amazon type world. Uh, it's a different type of buyer and people look forward to going to that store and they've been able to survive uh, and then thrive after it too. So, we, you know, the answer to your question is just, being very careful, looking, insisting very strongly on that financial strength because we don't know when there's going to be cyclical changes. But we want to make sure, particularly as a smaller company, you've got that margin of safety that you know they're going to come out from it stronger and take advantage. And some of those retailers, I think that's an interesting area that, uh, you know, in a world where everyone just thinks it's about bigger and better in e-commerce, there's some companies that are growing with financial strength in retail. Yeah. I, I- as a father of three daughters, Vildan, I'm very familiar with Five Below. I, uh, a lot of uh, disposable income gets dumped into that place. It, it's remarkable, though. That is talk about an impulse purchase mecca. You know, I found myself buying, you know, going in there, taking a kid there to get some art supplies or whatever, and, and finding myself buying, buying some impulse that's, buying some stuff on the way actually, out. Actually, that's how I feel about TJ Maxx, which you just mentioned, and one of their other uh, brands is Marshalls, which. I feel like I could go there every day and just buy like millions of things I have absolutely no use for. <laughs> so I'm one of those. <laughs> I'm one yeah. of those consumers. <laughs> I could tell you, I mean, you may attest at when, you know, things started to reopen last year, 
there were lines out the door and around the corner to get back into TJ Maxx. And that just, you know, we have this debate all the time about the pandemic and where the lasting changes, what are the new habits that are going to be formed and what are the old ones? And it just goes to show you that even though a lot of us are spending more on e-commerce, there's certain experiences that we want to have in person that just come back, whether it's travel or, you know, or, or, or going to a TJ Maxx, for example. It's it's good point about Etsy graduating out of the small cap space. It must be a, a little frustrating when you when you run a small cap fund to to pick a great stock and then watch it sort of graduate out of your uh, out of your benchmark. Like I did everything right. Stay. Why can't I keep this stock in the fund? But I guess that's how it works. Yeah, we have we try to take uh, into that into account. We we do give a little bit of leeway so we could sell it intelligently, and sometimes it helps us that discipline for something that is overvalued too. So, yeah. you know, we just have to keep, keep at it and there's longer term opportunities and that smaller cap uh, focus gives that opportunity for the, the, the customers that, that are interested in that to diversify their portfolios. So it's not just all things, right? Yeah. It's a way to differentiate yourself and get diverse returns. I feel like the through line here really is consumer behavior and what the consumer is thinking and doing. And one of the things that I had noticed this week is a lot of the research notes that, that I was reading were mentioning mobility data and people are still going out to restaurants. There's still foot traffic, you know, any of these measurements, Apple mobility data, uh, people out on the road. And it's actually holding up really well. And I'm wondering if you and uh, Chris, you and your team also look at some of these this so-called real-time data to uh, to inform your strategy. Yeah, um, look, it's you know it's information that's out there. We look at it. Um, I think the big thing here is I don't think we necessarily have any particular edge from looking at that. It's a that's that's data that's out there. I think it's much more about interpretation and what we're going to do. So it's much more about understanding. To the extent it can inform us of longer-term trends or longer-term debates that we could have, oh, we, okay, the mobility data says this. Is there anything here that 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 pertains to something that could be extrapolated in the longer term, or is this just a short-term deal, right? And so, to the extent it could help you time things a little bit, sure. But on a longer-term, three to five-year view, we're not doing too much of that. If the TSA numbers go down, we're not, you know, going to be dumping one way or another. I think it's much more about okay. Is there value in this sector? Is there value in this industry? Okay, if there's a short-term transient short-term effect, okay, that's an opportunity for us to add on a longer-term view, provide the company's got financial strength, good management, longer-term growth opportunities. So yeah, we look at it, but it's not, it doesn't inform what we do. Stand clear of the craziest things we saw in markets this week. All right. Guys, you know, you both represented New Jersey very well this week. We didn't even talk about what everyone's favorite boardwalk is yet. But I, I, I think we'll have to save that for the next time because we have to talk about the crazy things, Vildana, as you know. Vildana is our chief crazy things correspondent, Chris. Um, but I kind of, we'll talk after the show about the best boardwalks. I, I, I've, got, I've, got, I've got some serious thought on that. I don't want to tell you my favorite because the beach we go to is actually really quiet and not that many people go to it. And I don't want to ruin that. Oh, oh, you're hoarding it all for yourself. That's uh, the, the the beach scarcity issue is is a big deal in, in New Jersey. All right. I can respect that. But you do have to share your crazy thing, Vildan. And I hyped you up. So I, I want you to go first. What's the craziest thing you saw in markets this week? Well, I think a lot of listeners might remember that the last time I was on the pod, we talked about something that was happening in space 
in terms of astronauts doing laundry in space. And so I'm revisiting that same theme this week. And uh, Bloomberg had a story that caught my eye. It's a company called iSpace. It's a Tokyo-based space startup, and it's planning its first trip to the moon next year. It raised $46 million from Japanese investors to help bankroll those missions. So I feel like there's a lot happening with with space and all of the billionaires visiting space. And uh, that one was interesting to me. Are they going to put an actual person on the moon or are they just going to drop a, a little robot or something there? Oh, I'm not sure, actually. That's a good question. Probably a robot. I think we'd hear about it if it was a person. Look, I'm not one of those people that says the moon landing was staged, but I'm also like, how come no one else has landed on the moon? A human, what's going on? I, you know, you're not know. one of those people, but yet you are. But yeah, yeah, I guess I, I guess that's my tell. Maybe Bezos or, uh, or uh, Richard Branson will, will be up there. Bezos will drop like an Amazon flag on the moon or something. But all right, Chris, that one's pretty good. But can, can you beat uh, a moon landing as a, a? I don't know. I feel like this whole year is just full of crazy things. Yeah. Right. Whether it's enough. NFTs and crypto and everything else, or you know, Bezos going to the moon or not the moon, going to <laughs> outer space on like this odd shaped rocket that you know is. There's so much that's like fiction that there's, that's reality that is true um so you know and we're like the spocks the, the and the special or at least the special purpose entities and everything that's going on but i'll go with something that's a little bit you know maybe less crazy and just more interesting to me which is just i think you alluded to at the beginning of the of the show which is just this the healthcare tech thing which is just the fact that um you know i think everyone thinks about them together in this environment. And I would notice that if you go past the past earnings season, there's been a little bit of decoupling between tech reaction and healthcare reaction. And maybe that's the market trying to tell us that the pandemic, this is the crazy thing. You know, maybe we should be all worried that the pandemic is going to get a lot worse again. And, and I think you certainly put that through there. And so it's interesting how the market tries to anticipate these things. And you go back and you say, yeah, they really got it. And so now this makes me nervous a bit for the future, uh, just in general. Uh, yeah. But But it seems like there's no appetite for lockdowns, which is why the tech companies aren't doing better. It's much more about more tests and innovation there. So, yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense to read it that way. You know, we're not going to be stuck at home, but we're still going to be dealing with this thing for, for a long time. That's, that's pretty good. Um, and, and sad and scary. That might be the scariest thing of the week as well. Well done, Chris. <laughs> Crazy and scary. Crazy and scary is a dangerous mix. All right. Well, I got, I got a good one for us to end on. Um, and it's from the, the precious metals uh, asset class. And uh, well, Donnie, you know, there's a joke that if someone, if you're walking in New York and someone comes up to you and says, hey, uh, do you know how I can get to Carnegie Hall? You, you know what you're supposed to say? No. Practice, practice, practice. Oh, that's good. Do you get it? Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah, I can tell you're dying with laughter on that one. It's an old Hilarious. joke. You got to know these jokes, though. All right. Hilarious. So <laughs> it's so hilarious. But. I would ask, how do you get a gold medal in the Olympics? Uh, you take your phone apart and you melt all the little pieces. And- <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty good. That is how they did it, actually. Or, or I, you could say practice, practice, practice again. Another way you can get one, just buy one from an auction house, which I think is almost a bigger flex. Like, you, you know, you wear that thing to work. You know, and people would be like, Veldana, did, did you win a gold medal in the Olympics? Be like, no, I bought one. I'm not on talking I'm that type of player. So there's an auction house that has been selling some Olympic medals and 
Uh, Chris, this might catch you as a surprise, but Voldana will know it's now time to play Price is Right with the craziest things. And this is courtesy of the New York Times. Um, they are writing about the aftermarket for Olympic medals. Some of them are pretty cheap, I got to say. Cheaper than you would expect, but I, I'm going to give you one that is sort of the the gold medal of Olympic aftermarket medals, if you will. It's actually a silver medal um, from the first modern Olympic Games in Athens in 1896. Here's what you need to know then. Back then, first place was a silver medal. There was no gold medal yet. If, if you won, you got a silver. So this is first place silver medal, 1896 Athens Olympics. So two-part question for each of you. Voltana, what's your bid for that medal? And two, would you wear it to work? I would not wear it to work, but I'm going oh. to guess $36,000. $36,000. All right, I'm keeping a, a poker face. Chris, what's your bid for an 1896 silver first place medal, Athens Olympics, very first Olympics? I, I'm not sure. Let me figure out what, what event it was. I'm not even sure what event it was, but I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah, I think she outbids me. I was gonna. I mean, I would bid a lot, maybe twenty five thousand. But yeah, she outbids me, so I lose that auction. Uh, you're you're taking the under. You're taking the under. Yeah, I'm taking a little bit under. Oh, I know, but maybe I don't know. I I, I think it depends at the size of this metal, right? I, I can't think it was too gigantic. Although there probably was more silver content in today, right? Then today they say today's metals barely have anything in it. Yeah, you're There's probably some value to it. This is a true value investor here. He wants to know the meltdown value of the Olympic medal from 1896. No, no collectors <laughs> mark up for Chris. It's about the bragging, though, I guess. You have to have that collect. I don't know. But I, I can't think it's gigantic, though. Well, and the, the one downside, it would be hard to trick anyone into believing that you won a medal in the 1896 Olympics. I mean, maybe I, I might have a better you chance could. at you that could. than you. Yeah, yeah. That, thanks, Feldon. I, I set you up for that one. Thank you. You did. Thanks. Anyway, Boston-based auction house, RR Auctions, $180,111. $180,111. Pretty good for, I win. Uh, yeah. I get the gold medal. <laughs> That's all that matters. <laughs> well, Mike, but, you, didn't, you didn't tell us which Olympic event you'd be participating in. Oh, hoops, come on. Oh, okay. Hoops. Uh, I, not that I would ever, uh, the only sport I, the only Olympic type of sport I really play, although mountain biking's in now, I might be able to, uh, I might be able to, I probably have a better shot at qualifying for that than hoops at, at this age or at any age, but you're, you're 130 year old age. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. But some bargains on some other medals, according to the times, a silver medal in shooting from the 1900 Olympics in Paris, only 1200 bucks. And uh, 1956 Winter Games in Italy, uh, 3,700. So, but that I think it's the it's the value of that first Olympics that uh, uh, that makes it. And they don't talk about the ancient Olympics. I don't know if there's any medals available for that. That that would be the big flex, I guess. All right, Feldana. Well, I can't believe you wouldn't wear it to work, though. I would totally wear that thing everywhere I went. Really, I I don't see a reason to wear it though. Ah, it's for the flex. Yeah, I guess it depends on what state it's in and, like Chris said, how large it is. Yeah. Chris would wear, if Lafayette ever wins a uh, football championship, he'll wear, he'll wear that around, I think. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I probably at least would wear something like this for a day. Yeah. That, that, just, just for the effect, just for fun. Yeah, you got to show up to work with it, or at least on a Zoom call, you know? You know I'd be wearing it on a Zoom call for sure. 
Oh, what's that? Oh, that's my Olympic first place silver medal from 1896. Anyway. Anyway, uh, great stuff this week, guys. I think that's all the time we have. Really appreciate it. Chris Mack, Vildana Hyrick. I hope we can do it again someday. Likewise. Had fun. Thank you very much. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. And thank you to Charlie Pellet of Bloomberg Radio and the voice of the New York City subway system. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcast is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.